Amen. In his book, Reasons We Believe, Nathan Buznitz tells the story of Ponce de Leon, a 16th century Spanish explorer. Maybe you've heard of him. Ponce de Leon was a crew member on the second voyage of Christopher Columbus. He decided to stay in the New World where Christopher Columbus returned to Spain. While serving as governor, Ponce de Leon heard rumors of the Fountain of Youth. The Fountain of Youth. Of course, such a fountain could reverse the effects of aging and uh, could give eternal life. On March 13, 1513, Ponce de Leon set out for, from Puerto Rico with several ships to locate the island of Bimini. This is where the Fountain of Youth was to be found, supposedly. He was convinced that the island existed, and he planned to do everything in his power to find it. But although he did discover Florida, he never found the legendary Bimini or its life-giving spring. Now, despite good intentions and repeated attempts, this treasure hunter was doomed to fail because he was chasing something that didn't exist. Although he believed that it existed, his faith was disappointed because it was based on faulty data. The reports he received about the Fountain of Youth were false, of course, and so Ponce de Leon was trusting in sources that had given him bad information. Though his faith was sincere, it was worthless because it was founded on error. John chapter 7, as you know, we're studying we find divided opinions about Jesus. Whether it's the religious pilgrims who come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, or the religious leaders, or the citizens of Jerusalem, each has a perspective on Jesus. Recall from, recall from last week, John 7, verses 12 and 13. And while there was much muttering about him among the people, some of them said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Who is Jesus? Who is this Messiah? What are the facts? Last week we learned that the religious leaders said Jesus can't be the Messiah because he hadn't studied. He didn't graduate from their seminary. He had no credentials. He must be an imposter. The crowds appeared to be clueless to the intent of these Jews, not knowing they sought to kill him. And they were more amazed that Jesus might have broken a rule, that is, healed on the Sabbath, instructed a man to pick up his mat on the Sabbath. They were more, more amazed at that than he actually healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Whoever you might have been, there's certainly a lot of questions about this man from Nazareth. We also learned last week that Jesus answered these critics with four assertions about his identity and mission. In effect, Jesus gave them the facts. They mused critically about who he was and why he came, and he set the record straight. How did he do that? Well, as we saw, first, he declared that his instructions are God's. His instructions are God's. He said in verse 16, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. From this we discovered that faith precedes knowledge. That is, for anyone to know that Jesus is the Messiah, 
he must make a faith commitment. That's what it says in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus made a second assertion. This is review from verses 21 through 24, and it's this. His actions are good. His actions are good. Jesus made this point by comparing the healing he did on the Sabbath with circumcision. The logic was very simple in Jesus' mind, at least. If, Jesus, if Moses allowed circumcision on the, on the Sabbath, why wouldn't, he have allowed, why wouldn't he have allowed this kind of healing? If the Sabbath could be outshined by circumcision, well, then why couldn't it be outshined by the miraculous healing of a paralyzed man? These two assertions that his instructions are God's and his actions are good are two of four assertions that affirm the identity and mission of Jesus. And that, as you recall, is our big idea from last week and this week. And I'll say it again. This is our big idea. Jesus answers the critics with four assertions that affirm his identity and mission. Four assertions that affirm his identity and mission. And this comes to us from John chapter 7, verses 14 through 36. Last week we studied verses 14 through 24 and had the first two assertions, and this week we'll look at 25 through 36 and see the uh, following two more uh, assertions. And so, actually what I'd like to do this morning is read this entire section, and then we'll just study verses 25 through 36. And so with that, if I'd ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word, I'll go ahead and read John 7, verses 14 through 36. Again, John 7, starting at verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it, was, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now the passage for this morning's study. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and in him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were speaking, seeking excuse me, to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? 
The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that, he will not, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In verse 15, the Jews tried to discredit Jesus in verse 20, bless you, the crowd of religious pilgrims questioned the sanity of Jesus. He has a demon. In verse 25, we hear from the citizens of Jerusalem, the Jerusalemites, we'll call them. These citizens are better informed, and so their question is a little bit more revealing. Verses 25 and 26, they ask, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. They say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? These citizens, these Jerusalemites, they're astonished. How can this be? that this man is openly teaching in the temple area. And the rulers are right here, listening to him. A possibility flashes in their minds. Maybe, maybe they've changed their opinion about him. Maybe they actually believe that he is the Messiah. Yet, if there's any possibility of this, it is far from likely. Even the question, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ, as it's written in the Greek, is implying a negative answer. Can't be. And so they offer reason, a reason, why Jesus can't be the Christ. Here's their criterion why he can't be the Christ. It comes to us in verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Apparently, Jesus hadn't done enough to convince them that he was the Messiah, Neither the mountain of miracles nor his powerful preaching were enough to persuade these people. All of those count for nothing against this criterion, namely, that, well, they just, they know too much about him. As it turns out, there was a popular belief that Messiah would spring, you might say, from nowhere. This was the common belief of the day. That they would know nothing of his history or his origin. In their minds, there'd be no debate, no decision, nothing to assess about Messiah. He would just come forth. This kind of thinking comes out in a couple places. In the warning that Jesus gives when he speaks about the future in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. You recall this. Jesus warns us. He says, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Or, look, there he is. Do not believe it, Jesus warns us. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. The Jews, for their part, they pointed to verses like Malachi 3.1, which says the Lord will suddenly come to his temple to support such an idea. This thinking is also behind some of the rejection that Jesus experienced in his hometown. Matthew 13, verses 55 through 57. Is not this the carpenter's son? We know this guy. Is not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not his sisters with us? 
both the people of Galilee and these Jerusalemites, know too much about Jesus. By their standard, Jesus is just another man from a podunk town. Now, while the Old Testament doesn't speak to the timing of Messiah's coming, it does say a thing or two about Messiah. Most significantly, Micah 5.2 predicted that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And we also know that Messiah would be of the offspring of David. Both of these facts actually come out later in the chapter, in chapter 7, verse 42. Again, there's divisions among the people, and they say, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? We're going to know something about Messiah. Of course, Jesus could have explored all of these details, I can imagine what, he would, what his argument would have looked like from the Old Testament, why he was the Christ. But he doesn't do that. He moves to a more important point. While these citizens of Jerusalem know something about his human origins, they know nothing of his divine origins. Which brings us to our third assertion that affirms the identity and mission of Jesus. And it's this, his connections are grand. His connections are grand. Look at verses 28, 29. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. The Jerusalems thing, think they know a thing or two about Christ, but they don't know the half. And this gets Jesus a little riled up. The ESV here has Jesus proclaimed, but I think every other translation has Jesus cried out, which I think is a, probably a better translation of this word. The verb tells us that Jesus was deeply moved. He even raised his voice. He yelled so that all could hear him. What Jesus is saying is of a critical nature. Morris writes, Jesus gave the greatest publicity to this piece of teaching. Jesus is saying, so you know me in my origin? You know that I came from Nazareth. You know my family, okay. You know I'm a carpenter, at least from a carpenter's son. I'm the carpenter's son. Sure, you know something about me, but what's most important, you don't know. In fact, what you know about me, what you think you know about me, reveals nothing of my true identity and mission. Furthermore, Jesus tells him he didn't come on his own accord. He didn't come on his own authority, you might say. Jesus says, he who sent me is true. Now, these Jews would have believed in God, and so they would have knew that God is true in the sense of real. So I think what Jesus means here is true in the sense of faithful. God is faithful to accomplish his purposes and send the Messiah. He who sent me is true, is faithful to do what he said he would do. Whatever these Jerusalemites believed about the origins of Jesus, God really sent Jesus. And Jesus continues and says, it's him you do not know. 
By their standard, Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah, for they knew too much about him. By the standard of Jesus, they didn't know the Father because they refused to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus turns it around, so to speak, which reveals kind of litmus tests for knowing God. Jesus is the litmus test for knowing God. Those who recognize Jesus recognize God. Those who cannot discern Jesus cannot possibly know God. This litmus test strikes against the idea of pluralism and religious inclusivity. All roads might lead to Rome, but not all religions lead to Christ or lead to the Father. It's entirely false to champion religion as if it, that is religion, has the power to save. Religion is vanity. It's striving after wind. If it cannot confess that Jesus came from God and that he was sent from the Father. Could anything less be true? Look at verse 29. I know him. For I come from him, Jesus says, and he sent me. It's this one, Jesus, who knows the Father, who came from the Father, and who was sent from the Father, that declares, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except what? Through me. Remember what? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 through 25, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach what? Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Is there any accommodation, any compromise, or any syncretism in these words from Paul? We don't bother with signs. We don't bother with with wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. Why? Because it's the power of God. That's what saves. And it's the wisdom of God. Todd Miles in his book, A God of Many Understandings, writes, In the face of pluralist calls to see the essential sameness in the great world religions, the Christian faith makes no such affirmations of equality Jesus Christ did not offer himself as one path among many, nor did he claim to be the best path. Christianity is not the fulfillment of other religious quests, nor is it based upon 20th century, uh, 21st century sensibilities and judgments. The essence of Christianity is grounded in the reality that the God of grace is reaching out to those who have rebelled against him, and he has done so uniquely and emphatically through Jesus Christ. You realize Jesus is standing before, in this passage, arguably the most religious people in the world. And he's declaring, strikingly, you don't know God. And Jesus can say this because his connections are grand. It's Jesus who knows the Father. It's Jesus who came from the Father. It's Jesus who was sent by the Father. 
Now, how do the Jerusalemites take such an assertion? Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They tried to get him. Whether these citizens actually attempted to seize Jesus or, or John is just kind of speaking to the heart of the matter, this is really what they wanted to do. Either way, they couldn't capture him because it says his hour had not come. This expression speaks to the time in which the Father would allow Jesus to be captured by his enemies. Jesus, of course, was on God's timetable, and redemptive history would unfold on, in perfect schedule on God's schedule, not on these Jerusalemites' schedule. Job 23.13 says, What God desires, that he does. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You know these realities. The prophet Isaiah says, 46.10, that God declares the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Like all God's plans, the timing of Christ's death would be at the precise hour chosen by God. Later in the gospel, this is a theme that kind of comes up over and over again, this hour, idea of an hour or a time. Jesus will say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That hour will come, John 12, 23. Jesus would die at the appointed time and in the appointed manner. And that time is not here in John 7 at the Feast of Booths. So it says, no one laid a hand on him. Yet for all those who tried to arrest Jesus, there are others who did believe in him. That's what it says in verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Will he do greater signs? I, so, I suppose such a reason to believe isn't overly profound, to believe in the signs, but it is a step in the right direction. In fact, Jesus actually says something to, to this effect later in John 10, verses 37 and 38. He says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Jesus says, believe the works. <laughs> believe the works that, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. It seems that it's better at least to to have some questions about who Jesus is, but to see those miracles and to see those signs and to see those works and, and to say, God is at work. I, had, I still have questions, but I believe. Seems like that's what John is saying in this book. It's better to believe on the basis of signs than to not believe at all. As we know, I mean, what's the purpose of the Gospel of John? John writes, he, he's recording these signs. He's writing out these miracles so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have what? Life in his name. So even if we have questions, John wants us to look at these signs and to believe. Maybe we don't believe everything or we, we're still figuring things out, but it's a step in the right direction to at least look at those miracles and say, i got to pay attention. 
And if, if that's where you're at, keep paying attention. Keep reading. Keep studying. Keep thinking. Keep your Bible open and watch what God will do in your heart. John tells us in verse 32 that the Pharisees heard the crowds muttering, whispering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now, we, we read earlier that the Jews didn't want anyone speaking about Jesus. This is why they were whispering. They couldn't speak openly about him. Of course, they were offended by his popularity. That is, the religious leaders were offended by his popularity. Now, there are different groups, there are different religious groups or different sects in Jesus' day. We read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees or the Zealots. There are other groups as well. The Pharisees were the largest and most important group we see there named here in verse 32. This group controlled the synagogue, and they exercised, exercised most control over the people of the day. These, believe it or not, were, were the liberals. They were the, the progressives in Jesus' day. They accepted the, the, the whole Bible, and they accepted oral tradition as well. And so they were the liberals. They're compared to the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the conservatives. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And they did not believe in the oral tradition. And they were in charge of not the synagogues, but the temple. So that's kind of a little bit about the distinctions of these religious sects in Jesus' day. These Sadducees were very materialistic. They denied the resurrection and they denied lots of spiritual things that the Pharisees believed in, like angels and demons. Now, long story short, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, well, they didn't get along well. They fought. They didn't see eye to eye on anything. Well, almost anything. Verse 32 tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus. Well, if the Sadducees were in charge of the temple, who do you think or what sect do you think these chief priests were a part of? The Sadducees. So really what you have here is you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming together. And they came together to find some way to arrest Jesus. They joined forces. Apparently, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were able to obtain some kind of official order during the Feast of Booths. And so they did that to have Jesus arrested. We should take note that verse 32 is the first official act to have Jesus arrested. And so from this point on in the gospel, Jesus really has a warrant out for his arrest. Everything he does is with a warrant. This point in the Gospel of John, you can really see the, the, the divided opinions about Jesus. Lots of different people believe lots of different things about who Jesus is. There are some who believe, some who question, some who seek to kill him. As we'll see next week, there's even a Pharisee who might believe in him. Not only that, but hatred for Jesus has made allies from enemies. Now, we finally come to our fourth assertion that affirms the identity and mission of Jesus in verses 33 and 34. To review, we've seen that Jesus' Jesus's instructions are God's, verses 16 through 19, that his actions are good, verses 21 through 24, and that his connections are grand, verses 25 through 31. And finally, we'll see that his expedition is 
glorious. His expedition is glorious. Look at verses 33, 33 and 34. Then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. While the tone of such words escapes us, these words are offered in contrast to those previously stated. Jesus is not crying out here. In fact, there's a, almost a, a sorrowful, sorrowfulness or a sobriety to the words that Jesus offers. The words vibrate with a kind of pity. And this is underscored by the unshakable nature of Jesus' words. They're so absolute. They're so certain. I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. For the Jews' part, as far as they're concerned, their desire, their will, it means nothing. Luther said of this verse, these are terrible words. He said, I don't like them. In what sense might these Jews might be seeking Jesus? Well, they can't be seeking to arrest him because he says, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to, to him who sent me. He's gone. So it's, this isn't a hostile seeking. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about some, kind of, some other kind of seeking. This is a kind of seeking that comes too late. It's the kind of seeking that I'm calling a hopeless seeking. This kind of seeking is described in Amos. The prophet Amos writes, chapter 8, verse 12, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They, that is the people, shall wander, he says, from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Proverbs 1, verses 24 through 28. Because I have called you and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me. But he says, I will not answer. They will seek diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices." This is a hopeless seeking because, friends, the day of grace has passed. Jesus makes a similar point in chapter 8, verse 21, except he adds just a note that brings more despair, you might say, to the idea. I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins, he says. It is not for man to trifle. Life is brief and sin is here. Our age is but the falling of a leaf, a dropping tear. 
We have no time to sport away the hours. All must be earnest in a world like ours. Not many lives, but only one have we. One and only one. How sacred should that one life be? If you've not come to terms with Christ, then the words of John 74 are, as Luther said, terrible words. With each passing day, we are closer to such a reality. We are closer to a hopeless seeking. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, In a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The writer of Hebrews pleads, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And what you, what, what you must not harden your heart against... <laughs> from this passage as we're studying it, is the identity and mission of Jesus. Listen to these old words from Horatius Bonner. The one true goal or resting place where doubt and weariness, the string of a a pricking conscience, and the longings of an unsatisfied soul would all be quieted is Christ himself, he says. Not the church, but Christ Not doctrine, but Christ. Not forms, but Christ. Not ceremonies, but Christ. Christ the God-man. Giving his life for ours, sealing the everlasting covenant, and making peace for us through the blood of his cross. Christ the divine storehouse of all life and truth in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ, the infinite vessel, filled with the Holy Spirit, the enlightener, the teacher, the quickener, the comforter, so that, for this purpose, from His fullness all have received grace upon grace. This, this alone, He says, is the vexed soul's refuge. Whatever you're searching for, the vexed soul's refuge is Christ. It's rock to build on. It's home to abide in until the tempter, the great tempter, be bound and every conflict ended in victory. You and I must seek, we must seek the vexed soul's refuge, the rock to build upon, the home to abide in. Friends, before it's too late, before these statements become true of us. Tis not for man to trifle, life is brief as sin, and he, sin is here. Our age is but the falling of a leaf, a dropping tear. We have no time to sport away the hours. All must be earnest in a world like ours. Not many lives, but only one have we. One and only one. How sacred should that one life be? But shouldn't we turn the question around on ourselves? How has that that truth motivated us to plead with others about Christ? Yes, it's true for me, 
But if I accept it and believe it, how has that changed my life? Do I pay it forward, so to speak? Why is it that I leave room, me, for almost any thought or topic? Why do I entertain so much pointless discussion? Why do I engage in friendships with unbelievers and never tell them about Christ? Richard Baxter wrote, a pastor, I know not what others think, but for my own part, I am ashamed of my stupidity, he says. The wonder at myself that I deal not with my own and other souls as one that looks for the great day of the Lord. That thinks about judgment and joy. The judgment that's, that's over the head of all those who do not believe in Jesus Christ and the joy that's possible for all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Neither of which I think about enough. And that I can, he writes, have room for almost any other thought and words. And that such astonishing matters do not wholly absorb my mind. Church, the message of Christ comes to us as truth. And I think that's, as Christians, that's easy for us to accept mostly. We accept it as real. But it also comes with urgency. And I think that sometimes is harder for us to grasp. There's a sense of urgency that we must have with our faith and about our faith. Which is why we've tried to capture that in our vision statement. We're desperate to reach the lost. And friends, why are we desperate? Verse 34 is a good reason why. Again, you will seek me and you will not find me. There's a, a day of hopeless seeking. And so, how will these Jerusalemites respond? How will the crowds, how will the Jews respond? Well, they essentially scoff at Jesus. Look at verse 35. The Jews said to one another, where does, this, where does this man intend to go that, he will, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? They can't figure it out. The dispersion is the, these Jews that were in Israel, they went out into where the Greeks lived, so the Jews were dispersed out, outside of Israel with the Greeks. And so is, is he going to go out there? Of course, pious Jews wouldn't want anything to do with that because they wouldn't want to be around unclean people. So you can actually do that because we wouldn't go there. Maybe that's what he means. Of course, there's a little bit of irony here because what did the church do? It's exactly what the church did. I don't know if John means to say that here, but it might be a little irony. That is exactly what they did. They spread the, spread the gospel to those Jews and Greeks outside of Israel. So, I opened this morning with a story, Ponce de Leon. You recall, Ponce de Leon spent years searching for the fountain of youth based on unverifiable facts. 
and he died trying to find it, that fountain of youth. Nathan Boosnitz tells us of another Spanish explorer by the name of Hernan Cortez. He writes, while Ponce de Leon was seeking for the mythical fountain, the fountain of youth, Cortez was learning about a city so magnific magnificent it, it too sounded legendary. But there was something different about the information Cortez received. Unlike Ponce de Leon, Cortez had good re reason to believe the city actually existed. He had received specific details about the, kings, uh, the city's king, Montezuma. He also met one of the city's ambassadors. He had been given precious stones and featherware from the city as a token of Montezuma's goodwill. Although he had not yet visited the city, Cortez found the evidence for its existence impossible to ignore. The name of the city was, you ready for this? Tunauchtitlan. I don't know if I got that right. It was the capital of the Aztec Empire and one of the largest cities in the world. Today, you know the city is Mexico City. Of course, there was water all around it at that time. The city was known as the, Ven the, the Venice of the New World, and Cortez and his men thought they were dreaming when they finally saw it for the first time. But Cortez was not dreaming. His quest for the city's existence was not founded on legend or myth. It was founded on trustworthy evidence. And so, it was based on credible information, and they found it. His faith was vindicated because his sources were reliable. What's the point? Well, John chapter 7, we see a lot of divided opinions about Jesus. The Jews are seeking to kill Jesus because he was a Sabbath breaker. He found no honor in his own town or his own region, presumably because the people just knew too much about him. Even his own brothers, as we saw, didn't believe him. The religious leaders openly opposed him because he wasn't schooled by them. They didn't share the same alma mater. The religious pilgrims thought he was crazy. The Jerusalemites created a faulty criterion to deny him. And his enemies, well, they were forming alliances to have him arrested to kill him. Well, how does Jesus answer these critics? As we've seen, he's given us four assertions, four claims, four statements that affirm who he is, his identity, and his mission. In short, Jesus gives us the facts. His instructions are God's. Jesus said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. His actions are good. He made a, whole, a man's whole body well. His connections are grand. He knows the Father, and he was sent by the Father. His expedition is glorious. His purpose is profound. He will return to the Father having accomplished that purpose. And what is that purpose? John 3.16 probably the simplest way to say it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
And he says in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that, in order that the world, Jew, Gentile, anyone, that the world might be saved through him. And so what is our response? How do we respond? I think this song is a good response, and I think at the end of the day, we believe and we worship. All my attempts to be satisfied were vain and empty until the moment you rescued me and your love filled me. My soul sings, now my soul sings. I hope you will account our Lord Jesus Christ as worthy to be praised. And I hope that you would believe these things are true of him. Amen.